Come, children, let me tell you a story about a creature damned and forsaken, a terrorist towards the good people of the state, a demon who spread lies and stole men from their labor and wives, a trickster who caused mass hallucinations and betrayed his society. The good state finally captured this villain and tortured him for his many wicked acts. Nailed him to a post, and there he died. But lo, the story does not end there. Three days later, this monster came back hungry. Restless, undead, he now roams the darkness with one hunger fueling him. He wants your bloody heart! I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It is April the 12th. As of today, we have 1,797,518 worldwide COVID-19 cases, with 110,075 deaths. But I got a great show for you this week. At the top of the show, in The Devil's Advocate, we're going to be talking about Will, through Lesser Magic. In the infernal informant, he could have seen what was coming behind Trump's failure on the virus. And a nurse revealed the tragic last words of his coronavirus patient, who's going to pay for it? And in the creature feature, I'm giving you a double dose of emotion. We've got The Moonlight Sonata by Ludwig von Beethoven and Pale Blue Dot. That's right. Before we dive into that, thanks for uh, joining live in chat, people. I appreciate it. Joaquim, early. How you doing, man? It's late for you, right? <laughs> I'm glad you're. Uh, I'm glad you're watching. I'm glad you can stay up. Mike, how are you? It's good to see you. Valeria, how are you, my dear? Dog, what up? Uh, Sparkling shadows. It's great to see you. Jason, how you doing, man? Basilis, what's going on? Sean, Kelly, thank you guys for joining me live. And for anyone else after the fact, um, throughout the course of this conversation, or these conversations we're going to be having, put your thoughts up there and we'll have a, we'll have a chit-chat about it, right? A little bit of interaction, a little back and forth. Zachary, good to see you, man. Amanda, what's going on? Okay. Uh, so it is Easter, as my cold open uh, was an ode to Easter. I hope you guys appreciated that, if you'd catch it. Um, I spent most of the afternoon playing, uh, well, catch, essentially, with my family. So after the live vlog I did, we went out to the schoolyard and we threw the baseball around and we hit a few with the bat and we just sort of hung out as a family and it was pretty nice. And then on the way home, my son uh, was asking everyone if they wanted to race and so I took him up on it and he smoked the shit out of us. <laughs> he, holy shit. He can, uh, he can run. He's one fast guy. Now, I don't know about distance. I've, I, can, I can go distance. So maybe he's just a, you know, a sprinter. I don't know, short distance sprinter. But he's fast, like much faster than I was. And I was on track. Okay, uh, Basilis, uh, good. That is definitely good. <laughs> keep breathing. Just keep breathing. Uh, Dallas, how you doing, man? Um, I got nothing else for the intro, so let's just dive into the show. <laughs> Actually, no, I really don't. Never mind. All right, that was advocate. 
got an image for this one so I'm going to throw it up here really quick and uh, we'll get to chatting. <clears throat> I want to talk about will but first I want to talk about gravity. It'll all come full circle here in just a second. Um, gravity is not completely understood by the scientific community. Um, we know that it has something to do with mass and that it warps space-time. So literally, in the fabric of space-time, a large mass, like a planet or a star or a black hole, distorts, it bends the curvature of space-time so that when you are next to the mass, time moves at one constant, but when you are away from that mass, time moves at a separate constant. So us here on the Earth, we understand time in a linear fashion within seconds, but if you take a satellite into space orbiting our planet, it has a different time than we have. They have to offset it by milliseconds in our Earth's gravity um, uh, sake. So even if you go to a high-rise, the top of a high-rise building, with an atomic clock and have someone at the bottom of the high-rise with an atomic clock, there will be a difference in time. It's an amazing idea. It's a reality that, that is constant throughout the universe. It's not really understood why it happens, only that we understand it does happen. And in fact, our bodies exhibit the exact same amount of gravity from the mass we hold on the planet as the planet does to us. The difference is there's a larger amount of uh, mass that the Earth has in comparison to us. And so we, of course, when we jump, come right back down to Earth. Um, this is how everything works, right? So everything rotates around some other foreign object in space, and they're all influenced, this is our connection point here, people, by the gravity of other objects in space. So, if you get far enough away from those objects, they no longer exhibit that force on you. Do you understand? So, if our moon, as it is right now, continues to move slowly and steadily away from the planet, someday it will fly off on its own trajectory around the sun away from our planet. That is just a truth. Because, as it moves away, our gravitational force is weaker on it. So I want to talk about Will. With gravity as a background, as a, uh, a way of framing the conversation. Because I think, through lesser magic, Will acts very similarly as gravity acts. For example... If you're standing in front of me, I find it easier to manipulate you. If you are on the other side of the planet, I find it rather difficult to manipulate you. My mass doesn't affect you as much when you're on the other side of the planet, but when you're next to me, though it's infinitesimal, it's there. Uh, I want to... And again, this is very tongue-in-cheek here, and just by way of, of trying to explain my thought process here. I want to relate gravity to will after we understand what will is, right? And so if you look up the definition of will, for example, it is defined as used to express futurity. Meaning... It will ultimately come to pass. Your will will come to pass if all things fall into place, right? I will exert my will on the world around me and it will come to pass. It is a futurity. 
that I'm projecting. It's pretty insane when you look at it like that. It's not an active act right now. It's an act of expressing a futurity. That abstractness blows my mind a little bit. But when we look at our interactions um, and we look at the effect that we have on other people, by simply being present with some people, they will actually change their behaviors. They will change how they present themselves because you're just there, just because you're standing in the same proximity as them. Now, it could be a number of factors. You exhibit some foreign influence over them. They, directly or indirectly, maybe they are impressed with how you look or how you act or how you speak or engage with other people that they, in fact, on observing this, change their behaviors as well. Maybe not even directly just towards you, but to other people that are in that same space. We see this um, when celebrities uh, are walking down the street and they engage with uh, people who may be infatuated with them. A reasonable human being turns into a screaming idiot fan when they come in the proximity of a celebrity. So just by being near these people, it affects others around them. And it's not just celebrities, it's everyday people. It's, it's you and me using lesser magic in the workplace or at a, a retail environment. We are manipulating those around us. Our gravity, as it were, is affecting the rotation of others as they come by us. I think that's a fascinating idea. Nothing new. But when you look at science, observational science, it is again a fact that upon observing events, you change the events just by observing them. The exact same events without your observation like happen differently. So if observation itself is enough to alter reality, just you looking on, in the same way, your mere presence around others is enough to change their reality. You simply being there. In the same way that the closer you get to gravity, change changes your time, how you perceive and how time affects you, it completely changes it. And so, understanding this, understanding that I've always seen perception as nine-tenths reality, meaning reality is very thinly connected between everyone, and we all perceive it very differently. Our mere drawing of breath changes reality. And as Satanists, we go through life with intention, knowing that we are altering reality, not just for us, because we have to interact with other people in the world. We're changing everyone else's reality that we come in contact with, whether we intend to directly or whether they just perceive us and we indirectly alter it. Now, it may not be a big deal. It may just be, oh, wow, look at that interesting looking fellow. And then they stop paying attention to whatever else they were doing. And hence, their reality is altered by our presence. Or it could be active manipulation. You're given the promotion over someone else. You, fall in, uh, you attract a, a, a lover for an evening. Whatever it is, our presence direct and indirectly, affects other people. Now I have to reflect on this as a parent because if my indirect actions affect those around me, and as a parent, everyone knows this, your children learn much more from observing you than from hearing you, then everything that I've done has affected my son, for example. Now when my son moves out on his own 
and lives his own life, those effects that I've had on him are going to change and maybe dissipate entirely. Is he the same person at that point? Is our presence changing other people so much that we actually change who they are? And again, remember, I'm talking about perception here because reality is just a baseline. Everything that we understand about our world around us is through our perceived senses. So is he different when he leaves? I think he is. And that terrifies me because then I don't know who my son is. And in the same way that I'm affecting him, it is inevitable that his presence next to me, like gravity, is going to affect me and my trajectory in reality. My will has affected him thus far, but that's going to change. And so I want to take this a little bit more down the rabbit hole for just a second here. I want to get some thoughts here from the chat room really quick as well, because uh, I want you guys to be a part of this. Um, let's see, kind of like the fourth dimension theory, Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein were both have a better understanding of gravity. Interesting point, gravity never goes away, it becomes exceptionally weaker with greater distance. Um, our will has power, our thoughts rule the world. We are Schrodinger's people, very fascinating indeed, very interesting, energy can alter reality. Modern ideas on quantum physics shows that the observation doesn't change the outcome so much as it defines the outcome. Interesting. The object reality is always there but remains undefined. Probability. Manipulating energy is magic, technically everything that has been affects everything else. If you want to get into some six-dimensional perspective, you could theoretically change the past. Uh, and we're going to get into a little bit of that, too, um, because this entire show is going to be uh, tied together like that. I like our presence can change people. We have an impact on anyone we come into contact with. Then as distance happens and time goes on, time and space, this lessens. I see what you're getting at. I want to take it again a little bit further here. Um, and again, whenever we're speaking to mag satanic magic, we have to disconnect part of our thought processes because when we're engaged in it, um, you're not really supposed to be examining it all. You're just supposed to be experiencing it. Um, and so any sort of frontal lobe processes you need to do outside of the act of satanic magic. That being said, I want to dive into this idea a little bit because if we are a product of our environment, the society at large, the culture, the family unit, our peers, our parents, if we are a product of those around us and the environment around us, of their collective actions and wills having influenced a trajectory that we were set on, it doesn't define you, but it influences you. It pushes you and pulls you like gravity. How are we to find out who we are as individuals outside of our influences? And I, I want you to sit on that idea for a second, because this all comes full circle, in my opinion, on how we can be a better, lesser magic um, magician. Um, if you don't know who you are outside of influences, outside of external, external stimuli, how could you ever know how to manipulate others because you don't have a start point? Um, I, I'm terrified at the thought that because I've been married for over 20 years, I don't have a sense of me anymore. I just have a sense of my wife and I, the, the relationship that we're in. I take extreme measures to have one-on-one -on -one time so that there is a solid understanding of, of me within my own head outside of that relationship. But it is one of those uh, anecdotal ideas that's often shared throughout uh, couples. They're like, well, what if we got a divorce? Or what if that the, the other one died? Who am I now? I've only lived my life with this other person. Who am I inside of this relationship? Well, I, I want to think about that as there are those of us who have 
um, family relations dying and passing away. It happens every single day, not just because of COVID, but just as a regular occurrence of life. Life leads to death inevitably. Um, those who have touched us have changed us in ways. Do we take that on as a mantle of self? Or is it just a passing gravitational pull that doesn't actually change our trajectory? It just nudges us a little bit. It makes us wobble a little bit as it passes us. So who are we? Are we a constant as we cycle through life? Is there ever a sense of I in reality at all? If it's all just perception, if it's all manufactured, if it's all just how I've smelled it and how I personally have seen it and how my synapses have fired and made me understand it, how my personal chemical balance has presented it to my mind, if all of those variables and many, many more are how I perceive a reality, how could I ever perceive who I am through all of that? Um, Amanda says, you think it makes us wobble. Uh, neuroscience is not backing it up, but I understand why people like the idea of it. Uh, I don't think free will is a thing, Sean. Um, welcome to my world, Rev. <laughs> Dog. Um, you found in order to enter higher dimensional states, you actually can't think too long or it will collapse the waveform into a lower energy state. Um, maybe not in the idealized definition of free will, but I struggle to dismiss the concept entirely. The sense of I exists, but it's above the fourth dimension we interact with. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting thought experiment because it forces us to rethink about who we are as, as individuals, how we present ourselves to the world. If we know that we're going to be manipulating others, then we know that others are actively and have manipulated us. So we can't walk through life as Satanists, these monoliths of uh, force that are independent to the society or to the world at large that we live in. We're influenced every single day, whether it's because of elected leaders or whether it's because of a random person driving down the street. Uh, we will react to our environments and we don't control those environments and so we have to understand that who we are in this second is going to change and inevitably will change in a given moment now whether that's a reactionary change or a, a conscious change we have to understand that because we are malleable that's why we're able to bend others and it also means we have to be a little bit more conscious about how we allow others to manipulate us. Um, again, this was all just a bit of a thought experiment for me because I, I don't know if I'm going to know my kids after they leave. I don't entirely, I'm not convinced I know them now. I, I'm certainly uh, understanding that my parents did not know me. Um, and if I don't know them, the thought arises in my head, do I know who I am? And I spoke to this in a, a thought vlog earlier in the week where I, I often reflect on this idea of, am I just gaming the system? Am I just convincing people of things? Am I tricking people? And that's how I know who I am because I've tricked them. And if by tricking them, does that somehow make it less meaningful an outcome does it mean that I didn't earn it, in other words, if I tricked them into it? You know what I mean? And so this entire idea of self and understanding that we use as the basis for manipulating others to move out from, uh, it can be very, very fragile. And as Zachary is saying, wobbledy waddle wop <laughs> So spend some time and consider these ideas. And I, I always love the idea of com connecting it with gravity because then I think people can understand it a little bit better um, when it comes to having forces influence you in your trajectories. Um, 
and no, I don't think anyone earns their existence at all. <laughs> I think uh, this is a random, chaotic moment that I exist and that I'm able to be in a space-time place that has something called the internet that we can project out from and through. Like, it's an insane, insane chance of probability that any of this exists at all. And to, like if, to not appreciate that it does, that, that that's not an amazing thing, um, I think is a shortcut to thinking and I think is wildly unfair and unrealistic and I think dumbs down the majesty of existence, you know? Um, and it's why I celebrate it so much. <laughs> why I don't want to think about what's you know, what possibilities are after life. We know that this is the here and now. This is where we are. This is what we've got. Let's fucking hold on to it and enjoy it because it's the only thing that we have any level of certainty with. All right, that's enough with the devil's advocate. I hope you guys are okay with me uh, just rambling like that. I'm not even doing drugs. <laughs> it's just, that's how my brain works. Uh, let's do a little Infernal Informant. this image here. So someone mentioned in the chat room a little bit ago about how we can actually influence the past. Uh, a number of these uh, ways of doing this is to rewrite it. Uh, and that is what actively being done right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic and our current U.S. administration is trying to recolor the past to paint them in a good light. And the truth is, the U.S. is suffering worse than any other country, period, right now. Anyone. Worse than everyone. That's not handling it well. That's not doing a good job. That's doing the worst job. We are suffering more than any other country. Italy it does not have as many cases as we do. Imagine that. Their entire country was shut down. People were stacked dead in mass graves. And uh, we have it worse in the U.S. So I want to go uh, over an article that was released by the New York Times. He could have seen what was coming behind Trump's failure in the virus. Uh, and it runs through a long line of the, the history of the awareness of this virus starting in January and moving on. Um, now, of course, I believe it was actually last year. I'm glad. Thank you, Bessalus. I appreciate that. Uh, last year, I think it was in December when we were first made aware of coronavirus or maybe even a little bit before that. But I know for a fact and, and is being reported that our administration knew about it earlier than that. I mean, uh, at least in January. So, Quote, any way you cut it, it's going to be bad. A senior medical advisor at the Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. Carter Mechner, uh, wrote on the night of January 28th in an email to a group of public health experts scattered about the government and universities. Quote, the projected size of the outbreak already seems hard to believe. Throughout January, as Mr. Trump repeatedly downplayed the seriousness of the virus and focused on other issues, an array of figures inside his government, from top White House advisors to experts in the deep cabinet departments and intelligence agencies, he identified the threat, sounded alarms, and made clear the need for aggressive action. Unfolding as it did in the wake of his impact by the House and in the midst of the Senate trial, Mr. Trump's response was colored by his suspicion and disdain for what he viewed as the deep state. So I want to stop there for just a second. I don't want everyone to fully understand this. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good point, Jason. But um, the reason why it's impactful is because it was the most um, uh, the the most stricken and the most uh, caught off guard country of 
all of them uh, at the time. And the fact that we are worse with being able to have witnessed that is evidence of incompetence. Um, so I want to talk about this whole deep state thing. It's bullshit. <laughs> There's no deep state. Republicans are running the state. Republicans. This is a Republican administration. Our president is a Republican. And he is convinced because he doesn't like to admit to his own failures that there is a deep state controlling things. He appointed people in this supposed deep state that he is now trying to blame. We have a child running our country. And it's going to get a little bit more clear. Uh, the virus at first took a back seat to desire not to upset Beijing during trade talks, but later the impulse to score points against Beijing left the world's two leading powers further divided. See, part of the reason why they didn't want to admit that it was a problem is because they were trying to make a trade deal with China. And so how could you then slander the country that you're trying to make a trade deal for? So you, you tamp down the seriousness of the pandemic so that you can get your trade deal signed, so you've got a checkbox, you've got a win for the upcoming election, and then you allow the pandemic to sweep over us, which is what he did. Um, previously unreported details about his incompetence and the situations that happened as it unrolled. The National Security Council office responsible for tracking pandemics received intelligence reports in early January, predicting the spread of the virus in the United States. And within weeks was raised options like keeping Americans home from work and shutting down cities the size of Chicago. Mr. Trump would avoid such steps until March. January, February, March. Um, despite Trump's denial weeks later, he was told at the time about January 29 memo produced by his trade advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, Navarro, laying out in striking detail the potential risks of a coronavirus pandemic, as many as half a million deaths and trillions of dollars in economic losses. The Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex M. Azar II, directly warned Mr. Trump of the possibility of a pandemic during a call in January 30th. The second warning he delivered to the president about the virus in two weeks. The second warning in two weeks. The president, who was on Air Force One while traveling for appearances in the Midwest, responded to Mr. Azar as being alarmist. Mr. Azar publicly announced on February that the government was establishing a surveillance system in five American cities to measure the spread of the virus and enable experts to project the next hotspots. It was delayed for weeks. The slow start of that plan, on top of the well-documented failures to develop the nation's testing capacity, left administration officials with almost no insight into how rapidly the virus was spreading. Quote, we were flying the plane with no instruments. By the third week in February, the administration's top public health experts concluded they should recommend to Mr. Trump a new approach that would include warning the American people of the risks and urging steps like social distancing and staying at home from work. But the White House focused instead on messaging and crucial additional weeks went by before their views were reluctantly accepted by the president, time when the virus spread largely unimpeded. When Mr. Trump finally agreed in mid-March to recommend social distancing across the country, effectively bringing much of the economy to a halt, he seemed shell-shocked and deflated to some of his closest associates because he realized how badly this reflected on him in his coming election. Not the danger to the American people that he is supposed to be the leader of, but to his election. This fucking worthless piece of trash is more concerned and all of you people who love him as a president you need to understand he doesn't give a fuck about you he never has you are a blip so that he can make more money and have more power that's it now if you can accept that okay awesome you're a tool congratulations sheep but if that bothers you Congratulations, you're an independent thinking human, and you'd prefer someone to actually care <laughs> who, who is in charge of your fucking nation. Here's the irony. He was focused so much on the uh, stock market, which also fucking plunged, that his inaction over COVID pandemic 
caused it to fucking plunge. He was doing everything he could to tamp down COVID pandemic knowledge so that the stock market wouldn't be affected so that he could then get reelected. That he actually caused the fucking problem by not addressing the problem. How insane. Okay, let's keep going. By the last week of February, it was clear to the administration, uh, the administration's public health team, that schools of businesses and hotspots would have to close. But in the turbulence of the Trump White House, it took three more weeks to persuade the president that failure to act quickly to control the spread of the virus would have dire consequences. This is a guy who doesn't read daily briefings. If it's not one piece of paper with graphs and charts, he doesn't care. He doesn't concern himself with it. He, he has more personal time than working time. The task force has gathered for a tabletop exercise, a real-time version of a full-scale war gaming of a flu pandemic the administration had run the previous year. That earlier exercise, also conducted by Mr. Cadlick and called Crimson Contagion, predicted 110 million infections, 7.7 million hospitalizations, and 586,000 deaths from a hypothetical outbreak that started in China. I want to let you guys know that we are already three times that amount of dead. The exercise was sobering. The group, including Dr. Anthony S. Fauci of the National Institute of Health, Dr. Robert R. Redfield of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Mr. Azar, who had the stage, was leading the White House task force, concluded they would soon need to move towards aggressive social distancing, even at the risk of severe disruption to the nation's economy and the daily lives of millions of Americans. That's right. The economy exists as a reaction to Americans interacting with it. So if we don't interact with it, the economy crumbles. How are we going to restart this fucking thing? We're just going to print money, as they did, over and over again already. Apparently, health people could be unknowingly spreading the virus and supporting the need to move quickly to mitigate mitigation. As soon as they found out that you don't even have to be exhibiting signs of the virus to spread it, this is the reaction that the state gave. Quote, is this true? Dr. Kedlick wrote back to the researcher. If so, we have a huge hole on our screening and quarantine effort, including the typo where he meant hole, not hole. Uh, her response was blunt. People are carrying the virus everywhere. So you can say that you're excited that he shut down travel from China. But that was a month late. A month after he already fucking knew what was going on. Final days of February, perhaps more than any other moment during his tenure in the White House, illustrated Mr. Trump's inability or unwillingness to absorb warnings coming at him. He instead reverted to his traditional political playbook in the midst of a public health calamity, squandering vital time as the coronavirus spread silently across the country. Um, to punish uh, the punish, uh, the push to convince Mr. Trump of the need for more assertive action stalled. When uh, with my, uh, Mr. Pence and his staff in charge, the focus was clear. No more alarmist messages. We're not going to talk about the building being on fire. We're going to talk about how you need to get your ass to work and don't worry about the fire. It would be more than three weeks before Mr. Trump would announce serious social distancing efforts. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the U.S. grew from 15 to 4,226. Since then, nearly half a million Americans have tested positive for the virus, and authorities say hundreds of thousands more are likely infected that haven't been tested. The efforts to shape Mr. Trump's view of the virus began early in January, when his focus was elsewhere. The fallout from his decision to kill uh, uh, Maj General Qasim Soleimani, Iran's security mastermind, his push for an initial trade deal with China, and his Senate impeachment trial, which was about to begin. In January, on a call with a reporter, quote, we have it totally under control, he told an interviewer a few days later while attending the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, it's going to be just fine. So as you're watching the news, and you're maybe looking at these daily briefings, or you get a glimpse of a, a random tweet that our president sends out, the idea of our leaders engaging in social media makes me want to fucking puke. I get why people do it. But it's a fucking virus. Anyway, you guys know my feelings on it. Um, so let's stop pretending after you've had seen 
how he's trying to rewrite history and saying how what a wonderful job they're doing and, and everything is on the up and up. No, 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 no. This could have been taken care of much earlier and the casualties and infection rates would have been much lower. Over the span of the contagion, it might have been the same. But we're just at the fucking beginning months and it's already at insane levels worse than anywhere else in the world. It's just going to get worse. Now, I, I do want to put out there, for the past three weeks, I've been announcing infection rates and death rates. The infection rates, just since last week, have slowed. So, regionally, that's a potentially good sign. Um, the death rates, however, they're going up and up and up and up and up at, at mad scales. So, let's stop pretending that just because he's a liar, that we as Satanists should back him, as I know some Satanists feel. Let's stop pretending that just because he claims to identify as a Republican, that we should back him if you happen to uh, be a Republican. Let's stop recognizing that, yes, we are in a crisis, but that does not mean you have to stand behind the guy who fucking told you to go to work instead of putting the fire out. Let's look reality in the face and understand why it's as bad as it is right now and who's to fucking blame. It's this administration and their inaction. That's why we are where we are right now. Period. All right, let's move on to the next article here. Oh, damn it. Wrong button. A nurse revealed the tragic last words of his coronavirus patient. Quote, who's going to pay for it? This is a CNN article. Certified registered nurse anesthesiist Derek Smith is no stranger to the horrors of losing patients. But now the coronavirus pandemic has pushed him into a completely different, much more terrifying reality. Smith, who is predominantly testing COVID-19 patients at the hospital in New York City, revealed the tragic last words of a dying man he was about to place on a ventilator. Who's going to pay for it? The coronavirus patient asked Smith in between labored breaths. Quote, this patient was in severe respiratory distress, had difficulty speaking, and yet still his main concern was who could pay for a procedure that would extend his life, but statistically, he doesn't have a good likelihood of survival. Most COVID-19 patients will die after being placed on ventilators, with the mortality rate reaching up to 80% in intubated coronavirus patients, Smith said. While he does not know whether his patients survived, he said it was pretty unlikely. Quote, it was very sad and honestly a little horrified. This demonstrates that we have a profound failure when one has to worry about the finances when they're dealing with much bigger issues that have to do with life or death. The pandemic has highlighted, highlighted a lot of structural inadequacies in our country, not only the response to the pandemic itself, but our approach to healthcare coverage, Smith said. The United States is the only developed nation without universal healthcare. Nearly 28 million non-elderly Americans, or 10.4%, were uninsured in 2018, according to the most recent Census Bureau data available. Addressing coronavirus with tens of millions of people without health insurance or with inadequate insurance will be a uniquely American challenge among developed countries, tweeted Larry Levitt, executive vice president, president, executive vice president for health policy at Kaiser. It will take money to treat people and address uncompensated care absorbed by providers. Concerned that high costs may dissuade people from getting checked out if they feel ill, I can't even speak, ill, uh, many insurers in several states are waiving copays for the coronavirus test for certain policy holders, but patients will still have to pay for the visit. Other testing and any treatment for the coronavirus or other illness they may turn out to have. Altogether, about 16.8 Amer uh, million American workers, making up about 11% of the U.S. labor force, have filed initial claims for unemployment benefits just the prior three weeks. Uh, quote, this can only get worse if we don't improve equitable access to health care, Smith said. As a result of the many job losses related to the pandemic, the uninsured population will only increase and it will still remain a challenge for those who do retain private health insurance. 
The last analysis I saw projected up to 40% increase in insurance premiums by next year. So that's going to be an even bigger burden we need to talk about. So this is part of it that I don't think many people are focusing on. If you have insurance through your job and you lose your job, you have to pay in order to keep any semblance of that coverage. But you can't pay for that coverage if you don't have a fucking job. And so when you get tested positive for this virus and you are quarantined into the hospital, who's going to pay for that? The rest of us. That's who. Everyone else. As insurance premiums skyrocket. This is because we would rather live in a world as Americans where instead of our taxes going to taking care of our citizens, we want our taxes to go to creating drones to bomb civilians in the deserts of Europe. That's just the reality. We would rather murder people across the world who literally have never done anything wrong then ensure our population. It's fucking insane. The role of our federal government is to protect and defend the states. If there is a structure like Medicare and Medicaid, which is universally praised by everyone, that could then ensure the rest of the population so that those of us who are forced to keep insurance don't have their premiums skyrocket so then we can't afford insurance anymore by making it a public access. Why wouldn't you do that? And every single test that's come into comparison, examination of, of, of what's more expensive, universal healthcare or private insurance, every single case, universal healthcare would save $31 billion to the economy. That's amazing. And yet they only talk about how much it's going to cost. They don't talk about how much it's going to save. And yet we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. People are losing their jobs. They can't pay their fucking rent. They're trying to be able to find money and go to food banks so they can feed their fucking families. And this is going to hit us in the ass. It is coming. Our economy is going to fucking tank. Our healthcare system is going to fucking tank. And it's all because every one of you fucking idiots who doesn't believe the government should take care of you and yet still pays fucking taxes, which is the point of paying taxes, are fucking everyone else. All right. You just <laughs> look beyond your fucking nose for once. Just. It's right here. I mean, mine's longer than most, so I have a little more <laughs> sight. But if you look beyond it, you can see that, hey, if everyone has health care, I have health care! It's amazing! It's this crazy notion that self-interested people are self-interested by allowing others to have some similar options, like, I don't know, freedom of speech equal rights under the law <laughs> freedom of religion if we didn't have it we would be fucking killed fucking people man just look a little bit past your ignorance you stupid fucks and i know you know who you fucking are every single one of you you chick the little fucking r box every fucking time well guess what there's nothing wrong with the Republican Party platform, but no Republican in office, including our administration, has ever fucking met that platform in action. Not once! So what you're voting for on the party line is actually what's fucking you, and you're too stupid to fucking realize it because you're a tribal fucking sheep! <sighs> that doesn't mean vote Democrat. <laughs> it doesn't. Because Democrats are fucking dumb. They are stupid and they cannot get out of their own way. But, okay. Anyway, I, that's, that's really all this is, <laughs> this is about. Um, I just wanted to bring up that idea that, that we, we really should, really should 
enact universal health care immediately, period, because it will be less expensive in the long run than if we don't. And it means that every single one of these people who are dying, who have paid taxes their whole fucking life, won't have to worry about the fucking bill being passed on to their heirs at the end of this fucking funeral. Or putting everyone else out. Um, okay. <laughs> After that insanity, I want to close with this creature feature. We're going to talk a little bit and then I'm just going to let it run. And uh, I'll explain here in just a second. So let's do a little creature feature, people. change actually just remove this real quick uh okay so this creature feature i decided to um i i spoke i can't remember if it was last week or the week before um about what i love about humanity the majesty that we can create in humanity um that doesn't mean i like all people so get you know just fucking look beyond your nose here for a second um but i love what humanity is capable of um part of this is Ludwig von Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. So this was completed in 1801 and was released to the public the following year. The by name of Piano Sonata number 14 in C-sharp minor, um, op 27 number 2, Sonata Quasi Una Fantasia, nickname Moonlight Sonata, traces back to the 1830s when German romantic poet Ludwig Rechtelob published a review in which he likened the first movement of the piece to a boat floating in the moonlight on Switzerland's Lake Lucerne. Um, I openly weep when I hear this song, which is why I'm not going to play it until I'm off camera. Um, it moves me so deeply, and it reminds me what we are capable of as these emotional flesh bags that we are. Um, we're capable of sorrow and beauty and frustration and rage and hatred and all of that I adore. I adore the scope of emotions that we exhibit as humans because it's what we are. And I for one love me and what I'm capable of. And so I wanted to pair that with the visual of the pale blue dot. This is a photograph of the planet Earth taken on February 14th, 1990 by the Voyager 1 space probe from a distance of about 16 billion kilometers as part of the day's family portrait series of images of the solar system. The planet appears as a tiny dot against the vastness of space among bands of sunlight reflected by the camera. Voyager 1, which had completed its primary mission and was leaving the solar system, was commanded by NASA to turn its camera around and take one last photograph of Earth across a great expanse of space at the request of astronomer and author Carl Sagan. This is going to be a pixel in the middle of a light band at the side um, of the photo. And that's Earth in the vastness in the ocean of space. A tiny blue pixel. What we find so frustrating on a day-to-day -day basis. The pandemic that's sweeping us this year that's going to go the way of the dodo. Even if it comes back every year like a seasonal flu, it's going to end. Um, Every pain you experience in compared to the vastness of our universe is insignificant. And instead of feeling small in that reality, I get excited because it puts perspective around what I'm experiencing. The madness that grips me from moment to moment. 
it allows me to realize that this is frustrating for me in this moment. But the vastness of space exists outside of that. And it is beautiful. And we are created from it. We are connected to it. And to see us floating in it is incredibly thrilling for me. And it's an image that just swells my heart and my imagination, and I adore it. So I've put these two together, and uh, we're going to... Uh, I'm going to end the show directly after it, because <laughs> I don't want to have you guys seeing me all snotty-nosed and teary-eyed and stuff. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, coupled with, arguably... Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. Hail Satan. <laughs> 